This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Previously on Colors. This is certainly not new in Asian American history. Anjali Chong, past president of the Korean American Coalition of Washington, talks about racism against Asian Americans. Um, It dates back to 1882. Many Americans on the West Coast were blaming the declining wages um, and the economic ills on Chinese workers after they built the Transcontinental Railroad and uh, many of whom lost their lives during that. Coming up in this episode of Colors. The impact of COVID-19 on African-Americans. Almost a double whammy, a double disadvantage. Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, talks about race and risk. That as a demographic group, they are at higher risk of actually acquiring infection. Once they get infected, the social determinants of health make it more likely they will have a severe outcome. And he talks about vaccines. It could start happening towards the end of this year. That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Okay, here we go. I'm Chris Core, and I'm white. I'm J.J. Green, and I'm black. Well, J.J., obviously, um, the country continues to be focused on COVID-19 as much as we are focused on the racial unrest. And in fact, there is kind of an intersection because COVID doesn't play the same with both black people and white people in America. Right. Yeah, that's right, Chris. And this is not just African-Americans. Other minority ethnic groups are hit hard, too. But we African-Americans appear to be the most significantly impacted racial group. And as you and I have talked about this, I got wondering about it. And we had a chance to speak with the nation's preeminent authority on this, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Unfortunately, you had to be away during this interview. But nonetheless, it turned out to be a very productive opportunity. Dr. Fauci, thank you for doing this. Chris, who was unable to join us for this recording, had a question that we want to start with. Chris's question was, the Tampa Bay Times, which is where he lives, reports that blacks are two and a half times more likely to get COVID-19 than whites in Pinellas County. And the question is, why is that? J.J., there there are two elements that, that need to be clarified for people. One, the likelihood that African-Americans will get infected versus whites or others. And importantly, when and if they do get infected, the likelihood of their getting a serious outcome more so than whites. And the answer is, unfortunately, yes to both. Because African-Americans, you'd never like to generalize, but it is true as a demographic group, as a whole, obviously with many exceptions, but as a demographic group, their jobs that they have are generally more put them out there 
interacting, sometimes without having the easy capability of physically separating, as opposed to me and you talking through a computer, that as a demographic group, they are at higher risk of actually acquiring infection. That's point number one. Once they get infected because of the social determinants of health that are decades and decades and decades ingrained, what happens is that they have a higher prevalence and incidence of those very comorbidities, which make it more likely that if they get infected, they will have a severe outcome. And that is diabetes, hypertension, obesity, heart disease, lung disease, kidney disease, the kinds of things that we have in society that are disproportionately and disparately more among the African-Americans. So I, I call it, JJ, almost a double whammy, a double disadvantage. A, the disadvantage of more likely getting infected because of the jobs and your position in society and the likelihood of getting a more severe outcome. I hope if there's any silver linings when we get past that, that that will again shine a very, very bright light on the fact that we have to do things about these disparities. We, we absolutely, because it happens with every disease. It happens with HIV and it's happening with COVID. You know, I read recently that you did say that this was a double whammy against minorities and I believe you included Latins in that community. And I've also read that COVID-19 trials have been slow to recruit Black and Latino participants. If that's true, how would that impact the development of a vaccine? You know, it would not necessarily impact the development of a vaccine, but it will be a gap in our understanding. When you develop a vaccine, you want to show that it is safe and effective in all elements of society. If we don't get African-Americans and Latinx and Asian-Americans and Native Americans, if we don't get them properly represented in the proportion of those who are in the trial, we will not know for sure, although you can assume it, but you want to prove it, that it is safe and effective in that group. So that when the vaccine is shown to be a safe and effective vaccine, you can look the minority community in the eye and say, hey, we've already proven in a large, really good trial that this is safe and effective for you. So we've got to reach out and engage at the community level, minority groups, to be totally transparent with them and explain to them why it's to their benefit to not only participate in the trial, but once the answer is gotten, to actually take the vaccine. Mm -hmm. It's even more so, JJ, for them to do that because they are at a higher risk of a serious consequence if they get infected. Yeah, you know, that is excellent, excellent advice. And I appreciate that being an African-American because there is not a day that goes by that I don't think about that and other minority communities. You know, we've heard varying numbers about projected casualties before this is under control. Can you share with us what your research has told you about first here in the U.S. and then globally, what happens before we get this under control? You know, JJ, it's something that is so difficult to predict because it really, much of it depends 
on what we ourselves are doing in the sense of the public health measures necessary to contain the outbreak. Now, one of the problems is that, as we've seen, the most effective way to do that is to essentially shut down. The problem with shutting down and staying shut down for a prolonged period of time is that that adds to extraordinary economic instability, which gets back to your first question when you're talking about national security. Because economic considerations are, are really totally intertwined with, with security. Now, if we as a, as a global community pull together and try to reopen for those that have essentially shut down in a prudent and careful manner that doesn't allow the resurgences and rebounds of cases, then we could actually do fairly well or at least much better than the projections are now. But if we continue to have uncontrolled infections, it's very difficult to make a projection, but you could do multiple times of what is going on right now. Another factor which will have an important impact in any kinds of projections is the ability to be able to develop and distribute a safe and effective vaccine as well as safe and effective treatments. And that's going to be one of the things that's going to be a major determining factor, not only for us here in the United States, but certainly globally. As you probably know, there are a number of candidate vaccines that are in various levels of testing. Two in the United States and soon three will be an advanced phase three trial to determine safety and efficacy, which if things go the way we hope they will, by the end of this calendar year and into 2021, we should know if we do indeed have a safe and effective vaccine. Several of us, myself included, although we can never guarantee the success of vaccines until you actually prove by a clinical trial its safety and efficacy, we have cautious optimism that we will get to that goal, namely, uh, hopefully at least a moderately uh, effective and certainly a safe vaccine by the end of this year, the beginning of next year, because the early tests that we've done in animals, but particularly in the early phase one trials in human are indicating that the vaccine induces in individuals an immune response, namely it, 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 it induces the body to make a response that you would predict would be protective because it's equivalent to what people who do get infected, the response they make to ultimately clear the virus. So again, all of those factors are in play, interacting with each other, and that will determine what actually happens in the next year or so and how bad this gets, or if we can actually turn it around in a dramatic way. It's a combination of public health measures and the application of scientific advances. You said by the end of the year, we could have a moderately safe vaccine. No, no, no. I'm sorry. An absolutely safe, but moderately effective. Moderately effective. Apologies. Yeah, no, no. Because, I mean, I don't know what the percent, JJ, I don't know what the percent efficacy is. I mean, you'd like a highly effective vaccine. You know, you'd like one that's, 
90% effective. We may not get to that endpoint, but actually you may not need that. You could do anywhere from a 50 to a 70, 75% effective because if you get that much protection mm-hmm. and you vaccinate a substantial proportion of the country and the world, then you will create sort of an umbrella of herd immunity that could really stop the outbreak, even if you don't have a completely, totally effective vaccine. Okay, so let me ask this, and and apologies for the mix-up. How soon, if late this year, in 2020, we're at that point, could people start getting the actual vaccine, taking the vaccines? That's a great question, JJ. And theoretically, it could start happening towards the end of this year with limited numbers of doses. And as you get into 2021, you could start talking in tens of millions. And as you get into the mid part of 2021, according to the companies, and there are at least a half a dozen that we are dealing with, they are making advanced purchases, developing the capabilities of producing large amounts. And they're talking hundreds of millions of doses. And by the end of that year, a billion doses. So it's not going to be everybody's going to have the availability of a vaccine on the beginning of 2021, but it will incrementally increase, hopefully rapidly, which would obviously add to the question, well, who's going to get it first? That's an important question. And that's the reason why the standard way is to get independent advisory committees. The standard way we do that when there's Uh, constraints on total availability is that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the United States has an advisory committee on immunization practices, which makes those kinds of recommendations. This time with COVID-19, that process is going to be complemented by a committee put together by the National Academy of Medicine here in the United States to get essentially synergizing with the standard committees to make recommendations as to who will get it and should get it first. Now, I can't predict what that's going to be, but past experience tells us that you want to make sure you protect the first line, front line responders and healthcare providers who are putting themselves in a harm way to take care of patients who are sick with COVID-19. And then you want to make sure you protect the vulnerable, those who have a higher chance of getting into serious trouble if they get infected, such as the elderly and those with underlying conditions. Yeah. You mentioned herd immunity could play a role in getting this under control, and of course, with the vaccine. Would you explain exactly what herd immunity is? Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting concept that has been proven with other infectious diseases. When viruses enter into what you call a naive population, naive meaning immunologically naive, no one has any substantial protection to the virus that's circulating. That means virtually everybody is susceptible because the virus has an absolutely open season. They can just go around and infect anybody and there are no constraints. It doesn't meet any obstacles. As more and more people get infected and ultimately are protected because they've recovered and or as a vaccine is available, 
that induces artificially protection. What happens is that the virus doesn't have so much of a free reign, so it doesn't easily spread throughout society. And so when you have a certain proportion of the population, and that will always be the case, who are vulnerable because they have not either been infected or vaccinated, and they don't have protective immunity, when you have a substantial proportion of the population that is protected, it kind of boxes out the virus. It doesn't allow it to spread to those vulnerable people who are not protected. So that means that the herd is protecting those who are vulnerable. Kind of like, you know, the metaphor when you see a large herd of animals and there are vulnerable, weak ones or ones that are young and unprotected. Yes. When they travel as a herd, the people, not the people, but the other animals that are predators have a tough time getting to those vulnerables because the herd, which is mostly strong and protective, is not going to allow the virus to spread easily or to have the predator essentially penetrate the herd. That's how they get that word herd immunity. That is precisely why a lot of people believe so much in everything you say, because of your ability to communicate clear and effective answers to sometimes difficult questions. So thank you for being able to do that. So voting in person, should it be done, considering what's at stake and what's going on with both COVID-19 and, of course, November is right there in the wheelhouse of flu? Well, I want to clarify this because sometimes this gets taken out of context. If done safely, the way we often see when you go into a grocery store or into a Starbucks or into a clinic, you see the X's on the floor that are at least six feet apart. If we can abide by physical separation, avoiding crowd, wearing masks, and having the polling personnel wear masks, it can be done in person. However, for those individuals who feel that they don't want to take that risk, it should also be able to be done by mail. So I think both of those things can be operational. Mail voting, as well as those who feel if they keep their masks on, they keep the physical distance, and everyone in the polling station wears a mask, uses hand sanitizers, it should be safe person to person. But there are many people who just can't do that, who don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. They should be able to vote by mail. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully that will get worked out. Being the apolitical program that we are, we don't get into those things. And I'm sure you probably would prefer not to, given your most important work on medical and health elements that may connect to that uh, situation. But uh, I want to ask something. You personally have been criticized, and it's my understanding that you've received some threats. And if you don't want to talk about it, it's fine. But could you characterize your experience? Yeah, no, it, it, it's been extraordinary, JJ. And I think it's a reflection of the intense divisiveness in our society where we have essentially put public health issues into a divisive, politically charged situation, uh, which is really unfortunate. And you're right, I, I have been and continue to talk about the importance of certain public health measures. 
there are those who interpret that as being against the economy or against having people employed. That's not the case. We should be using public health measures as a vehicle or pathway to opening the country and opening the economy and getting the jobs back. But some feel that public health officials like myself are harming them as opposed to trying to help them. And with that comes extremes, extremes that I've never experienced before to the tune of threats, physical threats, death threats, harassments of my family, my wife and my children, which is, you know, I've been through multiple outbreaks over the last 40 years, you know, everything from HIV to Ebola to Zika to pandemic flu to anthrax. And I've never seen this level of, of divisiveness and, 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 and really un, unexplicable um, hostility, which really should not be the case because we are trying to keep people healthy at the same time as we preserve the economy. Okay, we'll end with a question from a listener. Her name is Dr. Gina Baysmore. She's a healthcare system pharmacist, and she says, first, thanks for the work you have been doing, and she wants to ask, what recommendation do you have for the African-American community and their healthcare leaders for the optimal prevention and treatment of COVID-19, and where have you seen this done well? Yeah, well... You know, I don't think it's, it's necessarily done well universally, but the optimal thing to do is to the extent possible, protect yourself and the vulnerables in your family. I think one of the things, particularly when you have multi-generational homes, where you come in and think that everything is okay, you've got to really be careful, particularly with elderly and those with underlying conditions. But just abide by the public health issues that we talk about the wearing of masks, the physical distancing, the avoiding of crowds, the trying to, to the extent possible, do things outdoors more than indoors. But also we have a responsibility as society to make sure that we get testing capabilities with results that come back quickly so that when you get into a group, a location that's demographically heavily weighted towards minority populations, to make sure they have accessibility to the testing, to the results and the health care. Those are things that we as society can do that the minority population should essentially demand as a right to have. She had one follow-up. She asked, once the pandemic is passed, what opportunities do we have towards the development of equitable health care? Can you touch on the importance of diversity in medical education? creating inclusive healthcare communities? Well, you know, it's just, ba- it's right back, JJ, to what I just said in answer to the, to, to the question that was just posed, that if there's anything that shines a light on our inadequacies in that, it's what COVID is doing right now. Please let this make a lesson learned, that when we get over this, we don't lose corporate memory We don't lose corporate memory about the importance of being prepared, really well prepared, but also the corporate memory of what actually happened disproportionately to certain demographic groups. We cannot let that happen again. So we know what went wrong. We know what we need to do. We will get over this, JJ. It will end. But I hope the effort doesn't end with the outbreak. Dr. Fauci, thank you. 
Thank you again. Let me just say, I honestly have no idea where we as a nation would be on COVID-19 with all of the chaos and confusion going on if it weren't for the solid and sage advice and counsel that you've given us on this. So thank you. All right. Thank you, JJ. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Colors. My name is Michael Edwards. I live in Raleigh, North Carolina. I am white, and I grew up in a small southern town about an hour's drive east of Raleigh. I am 72, and I recognize the need for change is long overdue in addressing the racism issue. I recall the words of Huey Newton spoken in the 1960s. If you're not part of the solution, then you're part of the problem. I want to be part of the solution that allows us to truly become one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. My name is Fonda Mwangi. I'm black. I'm from Southwest Michigan. Race in America is this omnipresent hierarchy, the status quo of the way things are. And my parents immigrated to this country from Kenya. And one of the things my mom told me when she got to this country is she noticed that her identity shifted. Before she was anything else, she was black. Before she was a daughter, before she was a mother, before she was a woman, that was now the most prominent part of her identity. And I think race in this country is exemplified in a way that it really isn't anywhere else. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Well, Chris, that was our interview with Dr. Anthony Fauci. I really wish you could have been there, but uh, I did learn a a heck of a lot myself in talking to him. Well, I have to tell you, um, he is an excellent interview. I I guess we knew that in advance. We've seen him on television over and over again, but he gave personal attention, was listening to the questions, answered them extremely well, and um, uh, you... You did a beautiful job. It was a really, really interesting. And one of the best I've heard with him, to be honest with you, in, in a long time. He was very, very good. And I think, you know, he he didn't duck any of the questions. He's He tells you what he thinks, doesn't he? Yeah. You know, thank you for your kind words, Chris. But I honestly, in 30 years of being in Washington and working as a journalist and hearing him, seeing him and reading him, I have never seen him duck anything. Um, when it comes to those kinds of questions. And, you know, what struck me most about it was the personal part. He really is genuinely perplexed about why people are hostile towards him and, you know, others that have tried to set the record straight and essentially protect Americans from this awful, devastating disease that I think a lot of people still don't understand how deadly it is. And the fact that he said that he's had death threats, I mean, that's just unthinkable. It's unbelievable. Um, how I got a question for you, um, and you don't know the answer to this, but I just wonder how because not everybody will get vaccinated. Some people don't believe in vaccines. Some people are afraid that the vaccines cause illness. A lot of people don't get flu shots every year. How many people do you think would you guess what percentage of the population won't get vaccinated? Well, obviously, as you said, I can't answer it. I don't know. The answer to that. Um, and but I, what, what I will say is that I feel very badly for those who do not, because this is not anything that we've ever seen before. This is not something that 
there's any certainty about survival if you don't get this vaccine. There are certain things that are in our society that have been in our society that we have a pretty good read on what's going to happen to you if you get it or get it, if you engage it. Um, you know, there are things that you can do, behaviors. When it came to HIV AIDS, there were behaviors. When it, when it came to Zika, there were behaviors anthrax behaviors that you could put in place to prevent you from being infected and and dying uh, or being very very ill this is no different from that and the fact that this is brand spanking new to me suggests all the more that everyone who has heard or has read or has seen anything or has been told you should consider getting a vaccine that you ought to get a vaccine they ought to go ahead and get it. That just isn't any well, room. You right personally now. get one the the day that that they say, "Okay, we've got it." Are you are you going to go out right away and get it? Absolutely. Why not? Me too. Well, me too. I mean, I, I, as soon as if my doctor says, "Yep, this is safe. You should do it." I'll absolutely do it. I can't believe any. It's hard for me to understand people that wouldn't. And part of the reason I ask that about how many is because the part that he talked about that was so important was the herd immunity, and the herd immunity will exist when a large number of people are uh, either vaccinated or have the antibodies or whatever it is that it takes so that it can't so easily spread. Doesn't mean it won't be around, but it means it won't be spreading like it's spreading right now. The other thing that that happened, and you talked about how this is different than anything else, JJ, is just this week there's a story that about somebody getting infected for the second time. So therefore, the fact you get it recovered doesn't mean that you're immune. Yeah, and that, but that's a good thing though, based on what I've heard from the experts that I've listened to on this topic of the the the, the Chinese national who got infected the second time, what essentially, based on the information that I've heard regarding this, what this this does is it uh, essentially gives um, some opportunity for those who are working on vaccines to understand how um, the body responds to this. And one particular person that I heard talking about this suggested, um, you know, this person has gotten it again, but will survive. Uh, and most likely, was I believe it was asymptomatic. It wasn't like it was before. Not saying everyone will get that that way. We just don't know enough about it. But what I did hear about the reinfection um, situation, the first person in China, is that it was a good thing on the whole because of what doctors have learned about reinfection. I guess so. I, I, it's, I'll take any nugget of good news that we possibly can have. Um, can I do? Uh, can I bring back one thing completely off topic, just because we've we've sort of gotten away from the race thing here? This is something you and I have talked about over and over again. It's about naming things. I came across this, and I've been saving it to to read it to you. Um, this is a quote. All right, I predicted on this show a while ago that the Edmund Pettus Bridge would be named the John Lewis Bridge at some you point. You did. You did. Yeah. And I, then I saw this. Uh, this is a quote from John Lewis. We must tell our story fully rather than hide the chapters we wish did not exist. Keeping the name of a bridge is not an endorsement of the man who bears its name. The Edmund Pettus Bridge, I'm sorry, the Edmund Pettus name represents the truth of the American story. You can change the name, but you can't change the facts of history. Huh. Apparently, 
he would not want to change the name of the bridge because it's not a celebration of Edmund Pettus. It is just a chapter in American history, and he doesn't think we should forget those chapters. Your thoughts on that? There are people, and I'm among them on certain things, that believe some things are better left unchanged. And a part of the reason why I say that is because as we continue to uh, drive towards a more enlightened society, more people being uh, in, in learning things and being educated about things, it's important for people to understand where things came from. And you can't always Google something when you see it. You can't always research it when you see it. But I can guarantee you that anybody who sees the name on that bridge, the Edmund Pettus Bridge, uh, and John Lewis's name on it as well, would recognize and understand the juxtaposition. So maybe there's room for both. Maybe there's... Oh, I see what you're saying. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's no competition between Pettus and John Lewis. John Lewis won the day he set foot (laughs) on that bridge. You know, it was over that day. John Lewis won that you know, won that round for, for, for history, black, black Americans and, and white Americans and for the whole country. And so taking Pettus's name off of that bridge is, is okay. You could do that. But if you left it and gave that bridge, the John Lewis name, but with a plaque or something that explains Edmund Pettus and what took place, what went down on that bridge. Well, you know, you got to do that anyway, if you put John Lewis's name on the bridge, right? Uh, yeah, you would put on a plaque about the, the uh, uh, about the march, but you wouldn't necessarily keep Pettus. I mean, I, I, if it were me, uh, I would dump Pettus's name. But and, you know, that's just me. I, I but I respect that John Lewis said that. I understand the point. The point is, if you pretend this stuff did not exist, you're never going to learn from it. And that's true, too. Yeah. I'm J.J. Green. And I'm black. I'm Chris Core, and I'm white. And this is Colors. Coming up in our next episode of Colors. Driving Wild Black, Motor Trend Magazine just published an eye-opening article. Yes, we get readers who say, you know, stay out of politics, stick to cars. This is not politics. This is a human rights issue. Mark Rechten is editor-in-chief. Gretchen Soren wrote the article. I was fascinated by um, a little booklet that a, a colleague of mine showed me about 20 years ago called The Negro Motorist Green Book. Yes, that book. Same name as the movie. During the dangerous days of Jim Crow segregation, it was difficult to be an African-American traveler. That article that she wrote and this episode explore the difficulty being an African-American driver today. That's coming up in our next episode of Colors. Well, it's time to scoot again, but you can't scoot before you thank those people that made it happen. And those people are Hillary Howard, Mike Chikaitis, Lily Quiros, Antonello Favro, Dimitri Sotis, Julia Ziegler, Joel Oxley, Ellie Rowe, Greg Strassel, Hagar Chamali, Lisa Weiner, Craig Schwab, Rose Varner Gaskins, Beth Gibbs, Sean Anderson, Thomas Warren, and for the music, Freedom Trail Studio, Jesse Gallagher, and Cosmic. And most of all, thank you for listening to us. And finally, remember, just keep talking to each other. This is Colors, 
a dialogue on race in America. If you want to contact us, you can reach us at thecolorspodcast at gmail.com. That's thecolorspodcast, one word, at gmail.com. You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts.